you imagine when we meet his gaze? That will be amazing. Very much as I am preparing for a funeral that I, very often as I prepare I, and think of death and resurrection, I think of the book of Job and I think of Job in chapter 19 where he says that he will see his Redeemer with his own eyes. I know that my Redeemer lives and though my flesh may be destroyed here on earth, I shall see him with my own eyes. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Amen. Well, we are talking resurrection for several weeks now. So take your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. We'll read in just a moment. We saw in Sunday school uh, class a few weeks ago, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. I'll do a pop quiz so he remembers it. You remember, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You may remember that from Sunday school as we have been learning from the great researcher and preacher Solomon, and I believe that he's going to be right here. I believe that this is, will be the case as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is really the, 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 the final stretch home. Uh, Then we'll have 16, some final farewells. But you have been patient for 14 chapters as Paul has rebuked and corrected bad behavior and practices within the local church. He has exhorted us to to basically to embrace healthy church practices. That, That everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we are involved in promote spiritual healthiness within the church so we we looked at healthiness within preaching we saw it in relationships and unity we saw it with dealing with sin and church discipline we saw it within our liberties how do we how do we deal with with those gray areas in life our liberties and our freedoms we saw it with worship gatherings and different things like that and so that's not an exhaustive list but that was that's a a whole bunch of stuff that we've looked at for, for really almost two years now. But now at the end, Paul is going to turn his sights and he's going to move away from practices within the church. And the Apostle Paul is now going to deal with doctrine. It's very unique, 1 Corinthians, than some of his other letters. He's going to deal with this doctrine at the very end. And specifically, the doctrine of resurrection. In verse 12 of this chapter, he writes this. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... Notice this, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Notice that, there's no resurrection of the dead. This, this becomes the central theme of chapter 15, that there were people within the church denying bodily resurrection. They were denying bodily resurrection. There was this, we'll look into it as we move in, but there was a lot of Greek philosophy floating around and that had infiltrated their 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 mind and their belief systems and so they were beginning to believe that the body the physical body of christians will not be resurrected and so beloved this weakened the gospel of christ because it would begin to unravel even jesus's resurrection and so he he comes and he wants to deal with this issue but i'll say this that it is very relevant for you and i today we are living in a time where the fear of sickness and death overwhelms us 
For the past two years now, or a year and a half, whatever, we've been living in a time where the fear of sickness and death overwhelms us, and we've been looking for hope to handle, to, to kind of fix our, our, the problem here. Not only that, you and I are living in a time of great political chaos and frustration, and it only grows by the day. And so we are wondering, where is our hope? What is the hope that we have in this world when dealing with sickness, death, and the frustration of society? The Apostle Paul reminds the church that our hope is, has been, always will be, in the resurrection that comes in Christ. And beloved, though the Corinthians were denying this, I'll say this, forgetting or not knowing this as believers is just as damaging, just as devastating as they, as them denying the resurrection. This is not a fail-safe for you and me. Our resurrection is not, well, if all else fails, then, then I got Jesus and I'm going to rise from the grave. No, this has always been and will always be the hope of God's people. And if it is not your primary hope in this world, then you have moved away from the gospel. And you will see that within the text. Paul is going to remind us that we have hope in Christ even after death. So where does Paul begin when it comes to the doctrine of resurrection? Well, Paul begins with the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope of resurrection is only made possible in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we begin with what Paul calls the gospel importance. And that'll be the title for this morning, the gospel importance. And there, in these first 11 verses, there are three things that I want to show you. And they're a little bit out of order, but it's okay. Three things that I want to show you. I want to give you the gospel summary, the gospel evidence. And then I want to swing back to, to verse 1 and 2 and show you a gospel warning. So gospel summary, a gospel evidence, and a gospel warning. So let's look here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to, to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He, they, he, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. I want you to take notice first of the gospel summary this morning. Notice the phrase that he uses there at the beginning. He says, I make known to you. It is literally drawing your attention. I, let me draw your attention to point A. It's almost like a child who is looking off into the distance and Paul just kind of reaches over he grabs them by the cheek right and he turns their little head and he says to them I need you to focus right here right for for for, for us homeschoolers we understand this 
there's that distraction in school and you just want to, you got to grab them and you just, I need you to focus on your work, right? I think it's any child. But Paul is doing us to hear adults now and he's telling them, I need you to bring your minds, bring to mind something very important and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says the gospel that I preach to you back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 and 2. If you may remember the Paul, Apostle Paul said, I did not bring to you a message of lofty words but I came to you knowing nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the very core of the gospel. But you're going to see that there's even a little bit more to that. He says this is the prominent message of the gospel. That word gospel is euigelion, which means good news. It is news that is so good that we must proclaim it. It is news that is so good that you must believe it and receive it and stand upon it. That's how good the news is. And so Paul wants to remind them of the good news that he brought to them from the very beginning. Well, what is this good news? Look at verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That is the gospel. Is there anything else, Brother Brock? No, that is the gospel. That sounds so simple. That is the gospel. Notice what Paul says. I give to you that of first importance. He doesn't mean first in sequence to time, that there was first and second. No, no, he means first as in priority, first as in as though this is important and prominent. And if you if you move away from this, this is so foundational what he has just said. There's two main things here. We're going to look at them. He says these are so foundational that if you move away from these things, brothers and sisters, to go to some other stuff, then you lose the message itself. You lose the gospel. And this is exactly what we have done within the church. In order to appease a world and to not offend a world, in order to grow our churches, we have moved away from the core foundations of the gospel. And the Corinthians were doing the same thing. They hadn't done it yet, but there were some that were beginning to move away. And Paul says, if you move away from this, you will lose the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice the two things that we have. The two core tenets two core principles the pillars of the gospel notice first he says christ died for our sins and notice the phrase for our sins which means on behalf of or for the sake of our sins this is what we call substitutionary atonement that jesus christ substituted himself in our place he substituted himself on your behalf and he took the punishment that you deserve for your sins Beloved, you are a sinner. And you're not a sinner because you did bad things. You do bad things because you are a sinner. At the very core of who you are, you are like your father, Adam. You are prone to sin. You you do what you are not supposed to do. It's the reason why all the things that we do, it it comes from the very heart of who we are. How do you know this, Brother Brian? Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, not even one. Not one? Well, so and so, not one. Well, my my family, no, not one. Well, what about the guy in the Bible? Not one other than Jesus Christ. 
Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one, not one person in this place or throughout history other than Jesus has ever been right with God, righteous. Nor are you even capable of being right with God. Because as he says in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To prove this, all you have to do, and I believe Brother Ed did this when our revival, is just look at the Ten Commandments. Begin to walk through the Ten Commandments, and I'll just give you a few of those, and you can ask yourself, have you done this? Have you ever stolen? If you've stolen, then you have broken the law of God, and you are a what? What is, a, what is someone who steals? You're a thief. And so we see that if you have stolen anything, you've broken a commandment, and you're a thief. Have you ever murdered anyone? Well, no, Brother Brian, I, I've never murdered. Well, good, I'm glad that you haven't killed anyone. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, comes and he says, I know that you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you that if you have anger or resentment in your heart towards somebody, if you lash out at somebody, if there's anger towards somebody, then you, in the eyes of God, have broken this commandment, and you are in, the, in his eyes, you are a murderer. So have you ever had anger or resentment or lashed out in anyone? Then, then you and I are murderers. So we're, now we're two for two. We're a thief and we're a murderer. He goes, we know that other, other, he says, have you ever committed adultery? Well, we say, well, I've never committed adultery, Brother Brian. Well, guess what? Jesus says, if you've ever had lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. You have broken your marriage vows by the very fact that you saw another person and you lusted for them. And so now we are thieves, murdering adulterers. Have you ever blasphemed God or used his name in vain? Well, I'm pretty sure that we've all done that. And we can continue on, but for the sake of time, we'll stop with four. And just in case you say, well, I've only done one of those. James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it according to the law of god the word of god every man and every woman every child every person in this building today and every person outside this building and throughout all of history is guilty of sin and breaking the law of god and brothers and sisters what do you deserve when you break a law but to stand before the judge and face your punishment. What is our punishment? Well, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so here at the very beginning of the gospel, we actually see the bad news that you are a sinner before God. And you deserve to be punished and sent to an eternal hell because you have sinned and broken the law of an eternal God. But... Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus, who was perfect, not a sinner, he was innocent of all wrongdoing, willingly gave his life for our, on our behalf to take the punishment of our sin. He takes on our sins on himself, and God pours out his eternal wrath upon Jesus Christ. He pours out his wrath and his anger that you deserve because of your sin for what you've done, your punishment for your crimes. He pours them out on Jesus. Jesus died for our behalf and willingly gave his life in your place. 
He substitutes himself by taking on our punishment onto himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took my sin on my behalf. He who was right with God became not right with God. Took my sin so that I may be right with God. It is the very core tenet of the gospel. You are sinful. And you need Christ to die for your sins. You need this Savior. But secondly, we know there is more. For Paul says that Christ was also buried and rose from the dead on the third day. The burial means that you are to put into a grave, emphasizing the point that Christ did not just get beaten to death. Christ did not just swoon. Christ did not just, you know, kind of get knocked unconscious. Christ was dead. Literally dead. Stop breathing. Dead. This is not good news, is it? Know that when my family received the news of the death of my own grandfather, it was not good news. It was not good news Friday night. So when Christ died, it was not good news. He is dead. But we know that on Sunday, that when Christ rises from the grave, Paul said, he's not just dead and he's not just buried. We know that Christ rose from the grave and that news is now flipped upside down. And it just doesn't become good news. It becomes the greatest news of all that the man, the the God-man who took upon himself the punishment of God for my sins, who gave himself as a sacrifice, thrown in the grave for three days, rises on the third day, God accepted his sacrifice on my behalf. For my sins that I may be made right with God. And it goes even further than this. He is not just brought back to, to the dead from the dead and he's brought back to life. He is alive today on the right hand side of the Father. And it gets even better than that, FBC, because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we know that when God comes to bring the complete and utter end of all things, and he comes to bring judgment, that those who have died will rise from the dead you listen this issue of heaven is not you with a little harp and you on a cloud in your spirit form that is now but when god comes back to come to bring everything to an end and to recreate heaven to recreate the earth you will have a new and glorified body where you will live on the new earth forever with christ with god with him because death has been defeated The hope of Christianity is built on Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And these two things are of first importance. Because it indicates his approval, his father's approval for his sacrifice. Meaning that you and I who are sinners and who are not right with God can be made right with God. That the resurrection of Christ is important because if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there is no salvation, there is no hope. Paul makes this very clear in verses 14 through 19. And we don't have time this morning to read them. But he tells us that if we, he says in verse 18, he says, Then those who have fallen asleep, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. Verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. But Christ has been raised from the grave. This is the core of the gospel. 
And our hope rests solely on a Savior who died on our behalf and who rose from the dead. And notice verse 2, he says, By which also you are saved. A better translation may be this, By this gospel you are saved. Beloved, this is what belief and faith is. This is where your belief and your faith is placed. Christ died on your behalf. It is your only hope of salvation and that he rose from the grave. And notice what he said that the Corinthians did with this message. Notice, he says, I made known to you, brethren, verse 1, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand. Notice those two things. They received it. In other words, they believed it, but understand that belief is not just this intellectual knowledge. We have learned that King Solomon had a lot of intellectual knowledge, but we know that King Solomon, with all of his intellectual knowledge and being this wise man, was not very wise at all times, was he? He he did some pretty dumb things. And so it's not just this issue that you have intellectual knowledge and you know that it's that you have received it. The word means to take hold of it. You take hold of it as your own possession, your own conviction. You, you, you hear this message of, of a God who sends his son to, to come and live a perfect life and die on a cross on your behalf and rise from the grave. And people say, this is impossible, it can't happen. And you say, no, I believe this. I receive it as my own conviction and my own possession in this life that this is completely and utterly true and my life will now be lived according to this. But notice they not only receive it, they also what? They stand on it. It literally means that you are to maintain a specific position or posture. You plant your feet. You you will not be moved. But Paul doesn't mean this literally. He means it figuratively. So think of one who stands their ground. They plant their feet in an argument. Don't you dislike those people? I, I know, I know. You dislike them. Because, because you're not going to be moved and you want them to be moved so you can win the argument. But they're unwilling to move. They, they have planted their feet and they will not be moved from this. So Paul means the Corinthians had received as their own conviction and their own possession this belief in Christ. And they have planted their feet in this. They are not standing on it, they are standing in it. And despite all the problems that we have seen and all the things they have, Paul says you are standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not all. And sadly, not all even, maybe even here today, and not all that we know in this world are standing, have received and stood on this two core tenets. And yet some of you, your salvation, you base it upon other things. You've actually received something else and you are standing in something else. It may be your religion. It may be your religion. You said a prayer, you walked the aisle, you were baptized. And so therefore you went to church. You are a religious person. You read your Bible, you do religious things. You give to religious organizations. And so that is what you're standing in. And that is what you have made your possession and your belief that this is your hope, that if I am religious enough and I do enough religious things, then I will go to heaven. And God says, no, you have believed in vain. 
Some of you have based and you're, you have received and you are standing not in religious works, but you are, are in religion, but in works. You went on mission trips. You help people. You do good things for people. And so you believe that this is what's going to save you. You believe that this is the very core principle of life. I need to be a loving person. I need to tolerate people and do good things to people. And if I do these things, then, then I will be saved. No. Some of you have based and you're standing on your own goodness, but sadly we've already shown that you're not good because you and I and all of mankind have broken the law of God, so none of us are good. But then there are those of you who say, well, I may not be good, but I am better than so-and-so. And so therefore you are standing not on the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're standing on more, uh, 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 moral comparisons. If I'm better than these people, if I'm better than Adolf Hitler, if I'm better than the president or the politicians or this or that, whoever, if I am better than them in comparison, I shall be saved. That is not the gospel. And there is no salvation in that. And sadly, you and I live in a world today that we truly have placed our hope and our salvation in all these other things, but not in that which is prominent and which is important. And so Paul tells us this morning, beloved, that if you have any hope in this world and in the next world, it is not in religion, it is not in works, it is not in your goodness, it is not in your moral comparisons. It is only found in the one who died on your behalf. And when all hope seemed lost, he rose from the grave in all power and victory. That and that alone is salvation. And you must receive it and stand on it and in it. But just in case there is one who says, well, I'm a little skeptical of this God who sends his son and who dies and rises from the grave. Paul understood that there would be those who would question this. And so there is now the gospel evidence. So notice with me what Paul says here in verse 5. He says, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So let's just stop there. Notice the evidence of the gospel, the gospel evidence. What we find is that Paul gives us three things to say to prove that Christ rose from the grave. There's actually a lot more there, but I'm only going to give you three. We saw in the first three verses that Paul said twice he died and rose according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures. He rose according to the scriptures. So we understand here that the scriptures were telling of this death and resurrection long before it ever came about. The death and resurrection of Jesus should not have been a surprise to anyone because all things were pointing to it. The Old Testament is filled with numerous prophecies predicting exact details of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Even Jesus himself, after he rises from the grave and he's on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he begins to teach them how the Old Testament scriptures were telling them of his life, death, and resurrection. Beloved, Christ's death and resurrection fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies in, of, his, of him. And what's amazing about this is when you begin to look at this through the issue of probability. And so for the sake of time, I'll be very quick here, that Peter Stone worked, worked out this, this, the probability, and if you need to know probability, see Mr. Bill DeCoo on this. He's probably a lot better at it than I am. And on the issue of probabilities of Jesus fulfilling eight of these Old Testament prophecies, but we know he fulfilled far more than eight of these. 
So let me give you the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. Well, let me give you some context. You being struck by lightning is one in seven hundred thousandths of a chance. You have a pretty good chance you're not going to get struck by lightning. A meteorite falling out of the sky and landing on your home is one in one hundred and eighty trillionths of a chance. You may get struck by lightning, but you got a pretty good chance you ain't going to get struck by a meteor. But according to Dr. Peter Stone, a scientist who did the math, the probability of Jesus Christ fulfilling not all the ones that we have, but just eight, he says it is one in ten octillions of a chance. It is completely and utterly impossible unless God did it. Brothers and sisters, we have the evidence of the scriptures that all of these scriptures came true. But Paul goes even further. He says not only that, he says there appeared the eyewitnesses. So verses 5 through 8, he says that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus rise from the grave. And here's the thing. This is not an exhaustive list. He leaves out a lot of different people. He leaves out the women in the Gospels who came to the tomb first. He leaves out the two people on the road to Emmaus and several others. But think of what Paul is saying, that if over 500 people who saw, heard, touched, and ate with Jesus within a 40-day period, and he says most of them are still alive today and can testify that this is not a fairy tale. How remarkable is that? So remarkable that lawyer Sir Edward Clark said it this way. He says, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it wholeheartedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to authenticate. In other words, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will stand in any court across this country, across this world. There's more than enough evidence. There is tons of evidence that proves that this happened. But Paul's not done yet. Not only do you have the evidence of prophetic scriptures and do you have the evidence of eyewitnesses, notice that he says you also have the evidence of a transformed life. For notice that he says there in verse 9, he says, he says, for I am the, last, the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul says not only are there the scriptures, not only are there eyewitnesses, but he says, I am evidence of this. My own life, I persecuted the church. I hated the church. I was the great enemy of the church. I was the villain of the story. But something happened. And the villain of the story became a great advocate for the church and for the gospel. And brothers and sisters, not just the Apostle Paul, but Peter and John and James and all those that we read about in the New Testament, all those that we read about throughout church history. And is that not the testimony of men and women today? Scoundrels. Wicked people. 
You. You thieving, murderous, adulterer, you coveter, you blasphemer, you dishonorer of your parents, all the Ten Commandments. Is that not us? But something happened. Something from the changed us on the inside. What was it? It was a resurrected Jesus. It was a Savior who died on your behalf and He rose from the grave. And so a changed life, brothers and sisters, is evidence that this story is real because it changes lives. So what does this do for you and I? It emboldens us. Some of you are so afraid of, to share your faith. You are so afraid to even, to even talk about Christianity and talk about these things because you act as though it hinges, that it's just make-believe and it, that, that there's nothing there to hold it. Brothers and sisters, this gospel has stood for thousands of years without you because it has been proven true. You should be emboldened by the evidence of the gospel You should live a bold life where you proclaim the gospel and when all who question you, you can say, brothers and sisters, my faith in Christ is not blind. You should live a life of encouragement. You should be encouraged because you have not believed in vain. When you begin to doubt, look to the scriptures and see that your faith is founded in the evidence. And not only that, it should give you motivation. Maybe this morning you are an unbeliever and you are under major conviction this morning. May I say to you, this evidence of the gospel should motivate you to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. It is real, it is true, and just as this gospel has, is not only founded in evidence, but we see the evidence points also to the life of changed men and women. It can change your life today for those who are in sin. But there is a third thing that I need you to see this morning. Notice verse 1 and 2. Go back and look at what he says. He says, Now I make known to you, the brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and which you also stand. But notice verse 2. By which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. In other words, he says, if, You hold fast the word which I preach to you unless otherwise you have believed in vain. To hold fast, brothers and sisters, this is in in present imperative. It It is not an option. It is not encouragement. It is exhortation. He is commanding you, hold fast, church. He is commanding you, individual, hold fast. Do not be moved from this gospel. You have received it. You are standing on it. But now you are being tempted to move away from it. And he says, do not be moved. Why? Because if you move away from this gospel, if you move away from Christ dying on behalf of our sins, you move away from Christ rising from the grave, you move away from the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, he says, you move away from the gospel and you put your own salvation in jeopardy. Is Paul teaching here that you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. He's actually teaching us here that those who move away from the gospel believed in vain from the beginning and were never saved. In other words, they never believed at all. You place your faith in something else, but not this. Because if you place your faith in this, you will remain to the very end. 
And so he means that there are church people within this church who, who are moving away and they are beginning to show evidence of a, of a lack of salvation, evidence of unbelief. FBC, we must stop believing that saying a prayer, walking an aisle, going to church is the true sign of Christianity. Perseverance and faith is the sign and the scriptural marker of a believer. If over time we begin to move away from the core message and the core teaching and the core lifestyle of the gospel, then it shows that we never truly received and we are not truly standing now. And there were those who were starting to move away because of this resurrection stuff from the Greek world. And we'll get into that in the weeks to come. And so Paul is is calling on them and he's telling them, do not be moved from the gospel. And sadly, there are people even today, people probably even in this own church, in this own place, that you are being tempted to move away or you have moved away from the gospel. You are no longer persevering in the resurrection, in the death and the resurrection, resurrected Savior. And we know there are people who have not done that. We have evidence of it. Why? Because the pews are empty. Because they were here once. But they moved away and they're no longer standing in it. They have intellectual belief, but it is not a conviction of theirs. Brothers and sisters, this is a great warning to the church and to you and to me. Our hope in this life and in the next is the gospel of Christ and we must not be moved. We must not begin to place that our hope of salvation is in religion and works and morality. Our hope for the future is not make America great again. It's not medical advancements. It's not better politics. You honestly, some of us talk more about our hope in these things than we do in a resurrected Jesus Christ. That when we get into conversations and we begin to talk about all the problems of the world and all the things that go, the last thing that you even think of in the conversation is, My Savior rose. And has promised me that I will rise too. We have placed our hope in all of these other things. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, it is moving away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hope for joy in this life. We honestly believe that if we're going to have joy, we've got to have materials and we've got to have money and we've got to have all these experiences and all of these pleasures. And yet, Jesus is telling us, I am your hope for pleasure and joy. I am enough for you. Moving away from this, brothers and sisters, is making Jesus the fail-safe. Well, if the person doesn't become president and we don't get the medical advancements we need and this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen, well, at least I've got Jesus Christ. No. No. Paul says, my hope has always been Jesus Christ. My hope has always been that even if I die, I will not stay dead. FBC, if a resurrected Savior is your last resort, brothers and sisters, you are not standing in the gospel and you have believed in vain. 
But I believe there is even another group here that may be present this morning, and is this, that you received the gospel, you have stood in the gospel, but you are beginning to waver. And I understand you. And you are beginning to waver. You are, you are hearing all the things that are coming. You are seeing all the persecution. You are seeing everything in the culture change, and you are being shaken, and, and you are beginning to think, maybe I believed in vain. Maybe I need to be moved. Absolutely not. In verse 19, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we have hoped in Christ in this life only. We are, we are all men most pitied, and some of us believe that that is who we are, that Christians are people who should be pitied for our belief, for our faith in a resurrected Lord. But it's actually the opposite because Jesus did rise. We have the evidence of it. We of all men should be envied. The world should envy us because it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who's in politics. It doesn't matter what medical advancements we have. It doesn't matter any of these things. Why? Because our hope is in Christ. Hold fast. I know you're being tempted to be moved, but hold fast. And FBC, may I say to you this morning that our position on the gospel of in gospel importance, we must hold fast. I don't have time to go into all this, but understand me this morning, we cannot preach anything else. And we cannot put our hope in growing our church and sanctifying people and people being saved in anything else. We must make this the gospel important, make this the importance of the church to preach Christ who died and who rose. C.H. Spurgeon, in his sermon, Enduring to the End, he wrote this. He said, Perseverance is the badge of the true saints. It is the scriptural mark that a person is a believer. All other conclusions, all other things that you may think are marks, he says, they are only the judgment of charity. They are the only judgments of love. They're just you being a good person and being loving. He says, but this is as far as man can get. The judgment of certainty when a man's life has been consistent throughout. He says, a simple faith brings the soul to Christ. And Christ keeps the faith alive, and that faith enables the believer to persevere so that he enters heaven. And listen to his final words. May that be you. May that be you. Brothers and sisters, may it be you. And it will only be you if you have received this gospel this morning. You are living in sin. And fixing it and being a better person is not your hope. Religion is not your hope. May it be you this morning that you come and receive Christ and stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. Or maybe this morning you are wanting to move. May it be you. May it be said of you that you persevered to the end, that you held fast to the faith that you believed from the beginning. May it be said of the church that FBC Jonesboro never moved away from the gospel of a Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who rose from the grave. And that is our hope as a church. Let's pray.